please allow me to introduce to you Miss Jean Calment. Born in 1875 into a shipbuilding family in the charming city of Arles, France, she married a successful drapery businessman and enjoyed an upper class life while raising her daughter, Yvonne. Her rap sheet includes surviving World War I, persevering through the German occupation of her home in World War II, outliving her husband, children, grandchildren, and outliving every other human being in existence. Making it just short of the 21st century, Jean died in mid 1997, amassing 122 years and 164 days of life. While it's true that life expectancy has been steadily increasing worldwide, in 1875, Jean's life expectancy was only 44 years. Jean was able to test the real life limits of maximal human lifespan. How was she able to accomplish this? Jean was documented to have dessert with every meal, smoked afterwards, frequently cycled, and lived a comfortable life. Is one of these the magic bullet to longevity? It seems that many elderly people attribute their longevity to something, whether it be avoiding red meat, going to the sauna, or in one particular case, well, I've always had a shot of sherry every night. That must be the reason. In this episode of Hashtag Health, we'll be examining aging and longevity. What is aging and how can we slow it down or even stop it? What evidence is there for extending life beyond life expectancy and closer to maximal lifespan? Is it possible to increase maximal lifespan? To help answer these questions, we were incredibly fortunate to welcome the experts geriatrician Dr. Laura Diachan, gerontologist and founder of the SENS Aging Research Institute, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, and Dr. Judith Campisi, researcher in cell senescence. My name is、uh, Dr. Laura Dyson, and I'm a geriatrician at Parkwood Hospital through St. Joseph's Healthcare. My name is Dr. Aubrey de Grey, and I am the Chief Science Officer of a biomedical research charity based in Silicon Valley, California, which is called Sense Research Foundation. My name is Judith Campisi. I'm a professor at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. I'm also a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. With our experts introduced, let's kick off this episode by figuring out what the terms lifespan and longevity really mean. Okay, so let's distinguish between two types of lifespan median lifespan and maximum lifespan. So I'll start with maximum lifespan because it's pretty simple. It seems that each species has been selected for a Maximum lifespan, a species specific maximum lifespan. And we, meaning the biomedical research community, don't have a clue as to, as to what determines species specific maximum lifespan. For example, a mouse lives on average three years, a human lives more than 100 years or can live more than 100 years. This is in a protected environment, right, where there are no cats and, and hawks for the mice and there are no lions jumping out of the savanna for people. Our genomes have been totally sequenced. Both the mouse and human genomes have been sequenced. They're 97 or whatever percent identical. And we still don't know why a mouse lives three years and a human lives probably 115 to 120 years as maximum. So that's a big mystery. And we don't know what it is that sets species specific maximum lifespan. We know it can be changed. For example, if all women, human women, were to start having their babies when they're 40 or 45,、um, after a few hundred thousand years,、um, we will have moved maximum lifespan outward. 
that's been done in Drosophila. You take Drosophila, you take the oldest, oldest breeders, you breed them, and you do that again and again and again, generation, generation, generation after generation, and eventually you wind up with a strain of flies that lives longer. Of course, we don't want to wait that long, but we don't really know of any genetic or pharmacological intervention that will move maximum lifespan. The more complex the organism, the tougher it seems to be to get an increase in maximum lifespan. Now, median lifespan is very different. Median lifespan has changed dramatically over our evolutionary history. So very, very early on, probably median lifespan was somewhere in the 30s. And then as societies became more cohesive, agriculture was developed, communities were developed where they could protect each other. It was maybe pushed out to 40s or 50s. And then, of course, with the advent of antibiotics, that caused a big increase in median lifespan around the turn of the century or the early part of the last century. And now we're dealing with the fact that there are other things we're seeing that are limiting lifespan, and we're slowly beginning to intervene in those things, arterial stiffening, joint degradation, lung and kidney failure, etc., etc. So median lifespan is very plastic. Next, we want to understand what defines aging and how it happens. So <laughs> aging is always very tricky to define. And in fact, there are many different uh, definitions of aging. And so we might say that aging is a process which is deleterious over time. It happens universally, so every single person will get older. The effects of aging are cumulative in nature, and they would happen even in a perfect environment. So even if you ate the best diet and exercised lots and had no unhealthy habits, these changes will occur in your body. I believe that a large part of why people have failed over the years to get anywhere in terms of keeping people healthy late in life is because of a failure to do exactly this, to actually define aging clearly and to think about what the definition means. So for me, aging is the combination of two processes. It is, first of all, a lifelong process that starts literally before we're born which is simply the creation of this thing I'm calling damage. The fact that the enormously complex network of processes that keep us alive from one day to the next, in other words, our metabolism, um, generates various changes at the molecular and cellular level, and these changes are progressive. They accumulate throughout life. And then the other process is where this damage translates into ill health, into pathologies. Um, where the body is simply impaired and impeded by the presence of this damage. The medications and procedures we know today treat diseases by targeting the second process Dr. Gray mentioned, the already accumulated changes and damage due to aging. We could just attack these pathologies and um, remove them, and that's what mostly we've been trying to do over the past many, many decades, with huge amounts of money spent with very little success. And of course we can see, just from the definition, that that's not a surprise at all. Because these pathologies are the consequences of this thing that's accumulating, this damage, which means that anything that attacks the pathology is absolutely certain to become progressively less effective as time goes by, and as the person gets older. So, you know, it's really pretty crazy that we have made this 
mistake and been so wedded to this mistake. But I believe that there's a simple explanation for why we have, namely that we never answered this first question of what aging really is in a satisfactory, rigorous manner. And we've had this, you know, this, this bizarre impression that aging is this kind of nebulous thing that maybe even not even in principle um, actually amenable to medical intervention. So then we might say, well, okay, how about breaking the left-hand process, namely slowing down or perhaps even stopping the rate at which our metabolism generates this damage in the first place. That would be very cool. Um, but unfortunately, that has also proven to be completely impossible. And the reason is, very simply, that the creation of damage is too intrinsic. It is too inseparably wound up within the processes that keep us alive, so that stopping it from happening without having unintended consequences that stop our metabolism from doing things we need to do has just proven to be beyond us. However, there is, of course, a third approach, which is the one that we've been pursuing at Sands and I've been advocating for nearly 20 years now. And the third approach is not to try to break either of these two component processes that make up aging, but rather to separate those two processes from each other. If we can go in and periodically repair these various types of damage that the body is generating, then we don't have to slow down the rate at which the body is generating them. We can just keep them below the, um, the threshold level of abundance that is pathogenic, and we don't get sick. And we don't even have to repair this damage perfectly, because if we repair most of it, then and we do that periodically, that's good enough. So what are these types of damage that the body is generating? Dr. Arby de Grey boils down the damaging metabolic processes that lead to aging into two types, cellular damage and molecular damage. The first type, cellular damage, includes too many cells, too few cells, and the presence of abnormal junk cells called senescent cells. The second type, molecular damage, includes damage to the contents within the cells, namely cellular DNA, mitochondrial DNA, as well as accumulation of intracellular and extracellular junk. We asked Dr. DeGray to describe one cellular process. So you can have too few cells, of course, and that will happen when you've got an organ in which cells are dying and they are not being automatically replaced by cell division and differentiation. Um, we see plenty of examples of this in aging. Possibly the most well-known is Parkinson's disease, where the uh, dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra because of their very high energy consumption and other things, they appear to have a rather higher rate of apoptosis than other neurons. And the result is that all of us by old age have lost maybe a quarter of the dopaminergic neurons that we had early in adulthood. And of course, as with everything in aging, some people lose these neurons a little faster than others. And if you end up being one of the unlucky people, you might have lost three quarters of them by old age and those other people who have Parkinson's. So, of course, we're all very familiar with the generic way to fix that kind of problem, uh, which is, of course, stem cell therapy, to put cells into the body that we have pre-programmed into being the right kind of stem cell, so that their lineage committed to be able to differentiate and become replacements for the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. And indeed, there are half a dozen clinical trials, um, either already in progress or just starting up around the world, trying to do exactly that. The reason for such great optimism is not only that we um, think we understand Parkinson's disease pretty well, that it pr pretty much entirely comes down to the loss of dopaminergic neurons, but also that it works. You know, that uh, in the original clinical trials that were done with stem cell therapy for Parkinson's, which is more than 25 years ago now, there were occasional spectacular successes where people would be given just one in injection of stem cells and 
a couple of years later he'd be taken off L-Dopa so they weren't getting any other treatments and still like 25 years later they got no symptoms. The reason it was only an occasional success back then was of course that back then we had very little idea how to manipulate stem cells in the laboratory so that they were committed to the right lineage uh, but now of course that's no longer the case. Dr. Campisi's aging research focuses on a different cellular metabolic process that we mentioned earlier, cellular senescence. But what is cellular senescence in the first place? So let me start by saying there are two ways to think about cellular senescence. The first, which is the predominant way, is that it is primarily a response to certain types of stresses. And what happens when the cells are stressed is they stop dividing essentially irreversibly, they become resistant to cell death, and then they begin to secrete a very large number of biologically active molecules that can have rather profound effects on neighboring cells, on the tissue, and even on the whole systemic environment. And we think that the key to understanding why senescence drives aging is due to this secretory phenotype, that is, in these biologically active molecules that the cells are secreting. And that's one way to look at it. But there's another way to look at it because aging is a consequence of the declining force of natural selection with age. That is, for most of our evolutionary history, there was no aging. People died of infection or predation or starvation, whatever. And nobody grew to be an old person. We have to think about whatever happens when we are aged as having had some evolutionary benefit. And indeed, that is the case in the case of cellular senescence. So, for example, we now know that senescent cells, indeed part of their secreted proteins, is very important for tissue repair and wound healing. That was probably selected for. So when you're out in the wild and you get scratched by a lion, you want to heal fast, and senescent cells help that. Senescent cells are also found in the placenta just before labor, and although this hasn't been proven, it's thought that that wave of senescence initiates labor because senescent cells make some of the molecules that we know are important for initiating labor. And then finally, there are waves of small numbers of senescent cells during embryogenesis that help fine-tune some of the structures in the embryo. So the really best way to think about senescence is that it's an evolutionary trade-off. That is, this phenotype evolved for several reasons that are good for young organisms. I should point out their ability to stop dividing forever protects the organism from cancer because obviously you don't want stressed or damaged cells proliferating. On the bad side, though, is as we now are reaching a period where we're living way past our average age evolutionarily, senescent cells accumulate with age, and now they begin to drive a surprising number of the pathologies that we associate with aging. Here's something cutting edge for you to think about. There's actually a new class of drugs in development right now that work to target the process Dr. Campisi is talking about. These drugs are called senolytic drugs. Well, there is a new class of drugs that are being developed. They're called senolytic drugs, and they are not ready for prime time yet. But there are a number of companies who are developing these drugs, and 
their mechanism of action will be to selectively kill senescent cells, but not the non-senescent counterparts. So the first drug that I know of has been put into people, but it's what's called a phase one clinical trial, and all that means is it's a safety trial. So the idea is is that you administer this drug and just monitor people for any kind of adverse side effects. That that's phase one. So it doesn't even address whether it's efficacious. Phase two will now begin to address whether the drugs are efficacious. So these drugs are kind of exciting. They have a couple of advantages. The first is that based on mouse models, transgenic mouse models that our lab and also labs at the Mayo Clinic have developed, we know that eliminating senescent cells, that is selectively killing them, in this case with a transgene, not with a drug, can benefit multiple tissues, not maximum lifespan, but median lifespan. And there are now a few drugs that uh, have been, they're basically failed anti-cancer drugs, but they seem to do the same thing. The advantage of senolytics is, number one, you don't need very high doses because unlike cancer, you don't need to eliminate every cell. If you if you have an anti-cancer drug, you want to kill every cancer cell because if there are a few that remain, they can begin to regrow. You have cancer recurrence and then eventually metastasis. In the case of senolytic, at least in our transgenic mouse models, you lower the burden of senescent cells by 70 or 80 percent, and that seems to confer a big benefit. The other advantage of senolytic drugs is that you don't take the drug all the time. So the idea would be that you dose, you have a dose of the drug, you take it, and then you wait until senescent cells accumulate again and you take it again. So in the case of a mouse, you know, that can be a few weeks to a few months. In the case of a human, we don't know that those experiments have not been done. So those drugs are pretty um, exciting, and uh, they are being developed, as I said, by multiple companies, and so we'll see. With all this research happening, it seems like a cure for aging is just a few steps away. Dr. Tigray says that in some cases, certain therapies have made great strides and that people have been able to spin them out into startup companies. That opens up an avenue for more funding to learn more about these new therapies. Now we're in a position where most of the other areas of damage repair are within striking distance of clinical trials. Some of them are already, as I mentioned, the elimination of Alzheimer's amyloid that's already passed through phase three clinical trials for a number of interventions. We've now got early stage clinical trials against senescent cells. In the next couple of years, we're definitely going to see clinical trials against other types of amyloid and also other types of molecular waste products inside cells, including the ones that we developed. So this is all happening pretty fast now. And, of course, the more things get into clinical trials and also the more that the clinical trial process gets modernized so that we use mechanisms like adaptive licensing to put things on the market and actually approve those things at an earlier stage in the process and compensate in terms of safety and efficacy by post-approval monitoring. You know, as soon as that starts happening, then we get into the range where people who are already suffering from the pathologies of old age do have a respectable chance of benefiting from these therapies. Whereas Dr. Gray is optimistic that a cure is around the corner, Dr. Kempisi takes a slightly different view. The question is, can we defeat aging? So the goal of modern aging research now, the achievable goal, whether we can ever move maximum lifespan is a big open question. But there is a new term that has been bandied about by the community called health span. And the idea is that you live 
not only on average longer, that is your median lifespan is is extended, but your health span is extended. And the idea is, is that you don't spend the last 10 years of your life in a nursing home sitting in a wheelchair drooling out of the side of your mouth, which happens much too frequently in, in Western society. My big worry right now is that if something goes wrong with some of the trials of senolytic drugs, it could set the field back. I'll remind you what happened with gene therapy when, you know, there were a few tragic incidents of people dying. It just set the field back by a decade. And so I know at least the companies I know of are being extremely cautious because, of course, everyone wants to avoid that kind of complication. But I, I do believe that in my lifetime, there will be some senolytic drugs that are available. They may not be marketed or were administered as quote-unquote anti-aging drugs. The FDA doesn't recognize aging as a disease, so it would have to be for specific indications. But if science is right that they have broad effect, then there will be increases in health span as well. And so it's hard to know whether they will make it to the point where they could be tested in the clinic. But, you know, by all means, senolytics are just ahead of the game. I'm sure they're not going to be the only intervention. While we wait for the potential breakthroughs in aging research and interventions, what can we do now? What kinds of things do we have evidence for now that can increase our health span or lifespan? Therapies such as caloric restriction and metformin have been claimed to have potential benefits on top of other common advice such as exercise and good diet. The idea that caloric restriction can promote longevity has been around for a few decades now, with research on animal models like worms, fruit flies, and rats dating back to the 80s. Caloric restriction usually means reducing the number of calories you eat anywhere from 20-50%. to It's thought that by decreasing the availability of calories, the organism that's restricting can trigger a highly conserved stress response that improves its chance of overcoming adversity. The truth is that caloric restriction is known to increase lifespan of rodents and other species by either slowing down how fast these organisms age or delaying the onset of the aging process. But the effects in humans and other long-living primates aren't very conclusive, with some studies showing decreasing age-related defects, but others showing no effect. Working in a related way to caloric restriction is the drug metformin. Metformin originally came from a plant called Galega officinalis, also known as French lilac, and was a traditional European herbal medicine. In 1918, it was found to lower blood glucose and humans began using it to treat diabetes. Metformin is mostly used for type 2 diabetes, but it can be used for type 1 diabetes as well, and works primarily by decreasing the amount of glucose released by the liver, thereby decreasing the amount of glucose circulating in the blood. Metformin also works to lower blood sugar by increasing the user's sensitivity to insulin and decreasing the amount of glucose that is absorbed after meals. But, the glucose metabolism functions of metformin may not be why it's thought to be anti-aging. There's also evidence that metformin reduces production of reactive oxygen species that reduces DNA damage, which are two key mechanisms that are thought to be involved in the aging process. Other than the few human studies that are currently in progress, there have been some observational studies showing that metformin users are less likely to have cardiovascular disease, cancer, depression, and frailty. Although we don't have enough human data to show its use in delaying aging, metformin has a good track record of being safe for long-term use in humans. It makes sense why so many researchers think it's a good pharmacological candidate for age-related and age-dependent disease. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a lot of information or misinformation in the lay population. Caloric restriction has been bandied about for some time, and we know that if you starve mice, that mice will live a longer period of time. But studies on humans really haven't borne out to that effect. In fact, we now see some evidence that older adults who are a little bit heavier may actually have a lot longer life expectancy than those who are thinner. Now, is that strictly due to weight? We're not entirely sure, but it may actually reflect health status. So when someone has chronic health conditions that consume a lot of physical energy, for example, Parkinson's or chronic obstructive lung disease or emphysema, uh, it may be that those individuals just become thinner and therefore also have a shortened life expectancy, as opposed to weight actually improving life expectancy. Dr. Diachen goes on to provide her recommendations to improving health span. It really needs to start with kids. So as parents, we need to protect our kids' brains, encouraging the use of helmets when someone's biking, when someone's using a scooter, when someone's skateboarding. And just at Christmas, my my kids were having a big discussion about how they were always the uncool kids who were made to wear helmets when they were tobogganing, etc. But protecting your health starts at an early age. Developing healthy uh, exercise habits, and that often again starts as children. Many youth stop exercising or participating in sports about grade nine. And if we can encourage youth and young adults and even medical students who get very overwhelmed by the amount of curriculum they have to cover to exercise, you're much more likely to exercise on into late adulthood. And that's very important. Well, at the moment, I think we have to say that the news is not good. That, yes, calorie restriction or drugs like metformin or rapamycin that essentially trick the body into thinking it's on calorie restriction when it isn't, these things probably do actually have some benefits in terms of health, especially for people who are living a suboptimal lifestyle, maybe not getting enough exercise and so on. So that's all good. But in terms of their ability to actually extend maximum lifespan, in other words, essentially to benefit people who are already doing okay um, and, you know, behaving the way their mothers told them to, uh, the, the, the evidence is not good. That basically calorie restriction is very effective if you're a mouse or a rat, but longer-lived species um, respond very much less strongly to these interventions. That makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, and now on top of that, it's not just theory, we've got plenty of data showing, for example, that in monkeys, color restriction gives only a couple of percent of increase in lifespan if you're lucky. I don't know if you've ever spoken to Nir Barzilai. He's at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, but he's trial for metformin. The idea of spearheading this that metformin doesn't only affect type 2 diabetic complications, but also many other aspects of aging. I, I think you know, there there are side effects of metformin. It has the disadvantage of you pretty much have to take it regularly. You can't just take it intermittently. Caloric restriction, you know, we don't really know if it works in people, but there are now some trials of a new paradigm in diet, which uh, has variable names, either time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting. Caloric restriction is hard to adhere to. Most people just won't do it. Some people do. Um, but they have to be very careful because it has to be caloric restriction without malnutrition. So I've met with some of these people and they start their meals with a bunch of pills and supplements because they can't be malnourished, yet they're 
your caloric intake is, is very low. Um, but now people are thinking about things like intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, just eating for a few hours during a day, but without uh, restricting necessarily what you eat. And it seems like that's going to be easier for people to adhere to. Nonetheless, there'll be a group of people who will do it, and there'll be a group of people who won't. Same thing with exercise, right? Everybody knows exercise is good for you. Some people do it. Some people don't. So probably most people know this, right? If you want to live a longer, healthier life, don't smoke. Have a good diet, a balanced diet. I'm not recommending any specific diet, but exercise. Actually, exercise is also a bit of a mystery, but it is probably the single most efficacious intervention uh, for extending overall health. And the last thing is you should be very careful and choose your grandparents carefully. Dr. Campisi is absolutely correct. One of the major factors on longevity is indeed genetics, which is according to the New England Centenarian Study, which studies the over 1,800 centenarians currently part of the registry. They found that longevity runs strongly in families, and the genetic influence is made up of many genetic variants which together provide a significant effect on lifespan. Unfortunately, genetics isn't a modifiable risk factor, at least not yet. However, the New England Centenarian Study also assesses the characteristics that centenarians have in common. These are potential modifiable risk factors which may allow for an increase in lifespan or health span, though they could just be coincidence or as a result of genetics to begin with. Nevertheless, they include lean weight, lack of smoking history, and good stress management. Other less modifiable characteristics include mothers bearing children over the age of 35 and scoring low on neuroticism and high in extroversion in personality tests. So, let's revisit lovely Jean Calment. It seems the largest factor that allowed her to amass such an incredible lifespan is mostly related to her non-modifiable risk factors. As her family had a history of longevity, she inherited the lucky genetic variants that allow for long life. And to an extent, this was optimized by modifiable risk factors such as leading an upper class and low stress life and being fortunate to avoid any catastrophic accidents. The New England Centenarian Study also provides a life expectancy calculator that assesses many modifiable and non-modifiable characteristics to estimate your life expectancy. The link is attached to the description of the podcast. As it stands right now, I'm estimated to live until 93, although fingers crossed there will be some successful interventions coming down the pike. So that's it for this episode of Hashtag Health. We want to thank Dr. Laura Diachen, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, and Dr. Judith Campisi for offering their expert opinion and being on the show. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be very appreciative if you could take the time to rate and subscribe to Hashtag Health to any platform you use to get your podcasts. If you want to listen to other episodes of Hashtag Health, I'd recommend the episode LSD, the story of human experimentation, the LSD resurgence, and psychiatric applications with experts Dr. Ken Tupper and Dr. Rick Strassman. So check out our page or visit our website, hashtaghealth.com, to find out more. This episode was created and edited by myself, Daniel Semenov, and Mary Nguyen.